Greetings, everyone. I'm excited to welcome Blake Hall, founder and CEO at ID.me to the show. Blake, welcome. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, great to have you here. Let's dive right in. Tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. So I'm a third generation soldier. When 9-11 happened, knew I wanted to be an army ranger. I spent 15 months in Iraq in 2006, 2007, hunting high value targets using uh, signal intelligence, which is my introduction to digital identity and uh, a mission set that we had no playbook for that I had to figure out while folks were shooting at me and my team. Went from that 15-month combat deployment to Harvard Business School, was trying to figure out, you know, the same sense of purpose I felt when I put on the uniform and, and coming out of HBS in 2010, started ID.me for my buddy's couch where, where I was planted, I think, far longer than either he or I anticipated for about uh, six months. And, you know, today we have over 110 million users. We had over 90,000 users a day. and we we have this vision of streamlining people's lives wherever they go saving them time and money to better access things they need whether that's web applications or physical access through a digital wallet well wow, that's yeah amazing background so in the army in combat and then the harvard business school and then from the couch it came <laughs> up with this this idea so yeah, and you mentioned in the Army signal intelligence. So is this something you had just been tossing around or something that you encountered during business school that said, hey, I think there could be an opportunity here? You know, I think it was a culmination of a few different things. I spent a summer at McKinsey and I love McKinsey, super smart people. And I was working on a pricing model for a telecom. And during that summer, they they couldn't believe the savings that they were overpaying their vendors, but they got on a call with one of their vendors and said, hey, we want to negotiate cost plus based on some of these findings. And the vendor came down $17 million in annual spend, like right there on the call. <laughs> and I was like, you didn't even need my analysis. You just told me on to negotiate cost plus. And, but I went home that night and, and I just didn't care. You know, I'd sure we, I'd grease the squeaky wheel of capitalism, but there was no meaning or social impact. So I, I was looking for that. And, and the thing that combat gave me is, is this notion that like life is short and I wanted to make a positive impact on people's lives with however many days, you know, I've left and I don't take any one of them for granted. And then the other part of it was, it just so happened that it, at the time when I started the company, like a lot of the founders, I'm sure who kind of catch lightning in a, in a bottle, there was this unique confluence of events where our economy is digitizing and coming online. So the password problem is more and more untenable because now you have to fill out forms and prove who you are and enroll into multi-factor authentication. That's a lot of friction. When you add friction, conversion rates go down, OPEX goes up, users get frustrated when it comes to customer experience. And you had all these data breaches like the OPM hack and then later Equifax getting hacked. So all this like secret knowledge that you could use to prove who you're, that you're you and you're online once secrets are public, they're no longer as useful. And I was like, huh, all the things that I did to hunt terrorists, I realized that normal people have a pattern of life that's completely the opposite of bad guys. You're probably not swapping SIMs in your phone and changing devices and porting phone numbers between carriers at pretty high velocity. And, and so once I realized that, that the other side of the coin for what I was doing from a counter-terror perspective could have a lot of positive impact on protecting Americans from identity theft and increasing access to digital services. It was that 
kind of kernel, but it unfolded over, you know, maybe a year, year and a half mm-hmm. as we were talking with customers where I kind of put all that stuff together. Yeah. 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 appreciate that. Yeah. That insight. And we know, yeah, so important now. And tell us a little bit about the products and services that ID.me offers. Yeah. So, you know, when I first started out, I mentioned I was a third generation soldier. I saw this goodwill for the military, but you would see really frightening behavior. Like every Veterans Day when the Outback gives a free appetizer, like blooming onion to veterans, veterans would bring their separation paperwork, which has their social security number on it to prove that they'd served. And so in effect, they were showing their social security number to a stranger to get a free fried vegetable. (laughs) I was like, that's, that's a bad trade, man. Like you don't want to show your social to a stranger for a fried vegetable. And the FTC data shows that veterans suffer from identity theft at twice the rate of the general public. So as we talked to all these brands and we said, let's make a more privacy enhancing way to do this. The Department of Commerce actually gave us several million dollars in grant funding. And we were able to go out and work with a variety of brands today, all the major sports leagues, Ford, GM, Apple, Samsung, all customers and say, hey, look, when somebody needs to prove that they're military, um, you know, let's only have them disclose the minimum amount of information. So their social is obviously not relevant. So let's just have them disclose that they're active duty or a veteran or a spouse. And then you can provide whatever benefit and we'll make sure uh, they're not defrauding you. And the other thing that was amazing was all these, you know, marketers said, hey, it's not just military offers that we want to make more privacy enhancing and bring online to its students, its teachers, its first responders, its nurses, its social influencers. And that was really when I said, oh, my goodness, we could be pay- PayPal for identity, that you could have a digital wallet that once you've tied your verified data to it could just move with the login. And then in 2012, the Department of Commerce said, hey, we want to change the way that Americans access digital services. Why should you have to create a new login at each government agency and the the government pays a credit bureau like Equifax over and over again? You go from IRS to SSA, you know, to maybe Veterans Affairs. If you're a veteran, you got three different logins. The government's paid the same vendor three times why don't we just verify them once and let the verified data move with the login? And that's where I said, well, that's exactly what I'm doing, you know, for these various communities. And when you look at federal agencies, VA is there to serve veterans. And we were already helping military folks in the, in nonprofits in the private sector, federal student aid is designed to serve students. Social security is designed to serve seniors. So in the same way I could use my physical military ID card to go from Lowe's, who's now a customer, over to a government installation, I'm an infantryman. So I was like, well, your digital wallet should work the exact same way. You should be able to go from the government. And, and so we, we won two grants, one focused on making it more privacy enhancing for members of communities like military folks to go around and access offers online where they, they couldn't, these brands couldn't bring the offers before and to do that in a privacy enhancing way. And then we did it for legal identity so that you could verify that you're you and get digital access to, you know, treasury or VA or social security or state and local government services. And, and that part of what we do is more like a digital driver's license that once you've bound that to your login, you now have single sign on, I think across 12 federal agencies, 30 plus states, 600 plus private sector brands, if I'm not mistaken. So, so it's, it's been a pretty neat journey. 
Yeah, yeah. Great journey and a huge mission. And do you think we're going eventually like our driver's license will be gone? Any sort of physical identification? Do you think eventually we'll ju- it'll just be digital like a lot of things have gone? Yeah, I, th- I think we'll have both physical and digital copies of it. Mm-hmm. And they'll be useful in different contexts. But ultimately, we're a wallet. And again, I just think a digital wallet is going to replicate pretty much what your physical wallet does. Your mobile driver's license will be in there, passports will become digitized, and we issue our own credentials directly in a way that the government trusts. So in some ways, we are like a digital DMV ourselves. But the reason why you're going to have different um, forms of ID that stay true to themselves versus like morphing into a super credential is because each ID card from a different issuer has different privileges, right? So if you want to cross an international border that's not Canada or Mexico, you're going to need a digital passport. If you get pulled over by law enforcement, our identity verification isn't going to help you because we can't credential people to drive. You're you're going to need to have visited a DMV. And so our vision very much is around having a digital wallet that makes it as frictionless as possible for people to load those different types of IDs. All of them obviously prove that you're you, but then they also grant privileges in certain contexts that are really important for access decisions. And so it's really a race to to kind of scale where you can both support all those credentials, but then actually incentivize users to bind them to a wallet and to have broad acceptance across the economy and to borrow a line from Visa to be everywhere that, you know, folks want to be. So. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, that's, yeah, pretty amazing. So tell us what, what year did you found ID.me? I started ID.me in February of 2010 with a few different classmates at HBS. Okay. Okay. Awesome. And do you have a, a physical headquarters location? We do. So now we're headquartered in Tyson's Corner, Virginia. And so we're a Delaware corporation with headquarters in Northern Virginia. Okay, great. And what's your approximate team size now? We, oh, let's see. So we have right around 800 FTEs and several hundred contractors, and that'll fluctuate from time to time. So over, over a thousand FTEs and contractors. Okay. And then anything you want to share around your around your scale, any revenue or AR range? I'll just say like the, the model's working really well. I, I think uh, we, we raised a Series D that was $132 million Series D with a post money of $1.72 billion. Um, our cash burn year over year is down 64%. Cost of revenue is down 50%, 77% gross margin increase. Almost half of the verifications we're doing across our network are pre-verified users. And that that's the visa model, right? It costs money to credential people. It costs money to get acceptance. But once you're at scale and people control their their own IDs, and you know, we don't sell data, it's your data, just like Visa doesn't sell money. It's it's your money to decide wherever you want it to go. Visa sells trust and convenience. And that's very similar to what we do. It's your data. You decide um, if you want to share it after we try to minimize it as much as possible. But we allow a counterparty to that transaction to trust it. And we streamline workflows from hotel check-in to government agencies where data shows that we've you know doubled the overall pass rate, tripled it for Puerto Ricans uh, at the IRS, which Congresswoman Cologne just covered. And so when you can deliver services through the digital channel, Instead of through like call centers or in person, there's massive cost savings. The government accountability office study showed that 
government one government agency pays $54 per interaction in the call center, $89 um, in person. So when you move overall pass rates from 40% to 80% plus per hundred users, you're saving 40 times the lower bound of 54. That's massive OPEX savings and dramatic mm -hmm. increases in customer experience. So yeah, so we're, we're well north of 100 million in ARR, double digit growth and all that good stuff. Won't, won't get into the specifics, but yeah, enough, sure. uh, put, put us in the ballpark of- Yeah, sales. yeah, no, appreciate it. Sounds like a great financial pass there. And so you've raised a bit of capital today. It sounds like maybe around 400 million. And you mentioned your most recent raise about 132 million. So tell us, you know, for the other founders who for listening and are on their fundraising journey, maybe they're just looking at their seed or series A. As you look back at those fundraisers, anything st stands out as lessons learned in that process? Yeah, I think it's really, it's really important at every stage to to have a really clear idea of what needs to be true to get to the next stage. And so regardless of what the size was, you know, I think the difference for a young company is that the reason why you miss your numbers all the time is that you don't have a repeatable business model yet. And so what you're really doing is you're saying, hey, I think that this specific type of customer has this problem and I think they're going to be willing to buy my solution but there's a lot I don't know what my cost of acquisition, how much it's actually going to cost to service them, what the scale economics are going to look like, how big that customer segment is. And so as long as you're, what, what I found anyway, is that if you're very upfront with investors to say, look, like, this is my plan. And I treated it like combat. I'm like, this is my plan. But of the 450 patrols I led in Iraq, I could count on one hand the number of patrols that actually went according to the plan I drew up on the base. like stuff always happens, right? So so you're very deliberate with saying these are the critical assumptions and milestones. And if this plays out, here's what we're going to do. If these things are invalid, here's how I'm thinking about handling those contingent scenarios. And then just having really good feedback loops and learning. And so I think early on, it really is about the scientific method and learning secrets about the market that nobody else knows. And as long as you're honest with yourself, and with your investors and your team, they will generally follow you. So if I had to borrow, I think one critical moment from the company's journey where we had to pivot, we, we had started like by building an app because we were doing the military verification, but try to compete with like Craigslist and create a trusted version of Craigslist. And that was only a few months. And I realized, oh man, we don't have enough distribution. This would be really hard to start. So then pivoted to say, well, living social is really hot and daily deals. So maybe we could become a gated garden for these military offers. And this is just for a few months in 2011. Looked at the cohort data with active and passive churn. I was like, that's not a viable business model. Talked to Tim O'Shaughnessy too. He's in DC at living social. And I was like, I don't know what you're seeing on the math side, but this doesn't appear to be like a, a viable business model. And so I went up to Andy Dunn's apartment. He's an early investor, founder of Bonobos. And in that apartment, Andy Ratcliffe, who's a Hall of Fame venture capitalist at Benchmark, he's a founder and CEO of Wealthfront. The Warby Parker founders were there. The Venmo founders were there. You know, Andy Dunn's there. And one of the Warby Parker founders like pulled me over and he said, he said, how much money have you raised? I was like, oh, you know, like two and a half million. And he goes, don't F it up. And he looked at me, he goes, big stigma. And and I thought about that 
all the way back down to DC. And it was, it was a pivotal conversation for me because I already knew that, that PayPal for identity was the true opportunity that was latent within the business. And that's what the market and customers were telling us. But that conversation really solidified that like, if I'm going to have one opportunity and to really nail what the business model is, I, I, I could have continued down this path and let the business die an incremental death that would have seen it just slowly fall apart. But we still had enough resources to really go for it. So we went all in on this PayPal for identity pathway and, and launched that in Under Armour's checkout flow and a pilot with the VA in like November of 2012. And we signed up 48,000 users in the next like 45 days. And it was incredible. And so, but I, I felt like I was going to throw up before you know, it was live. And, and the whole, but the whole team followed me. That was not part of the initial plan or anything else. But when I explained here that I'm hearing from customers, this model doesn't work. This actually is a pathway. And, and if we can do it for military, they're saying students, first responders, there's a much bigger TAM behind it. Let's go. Then, then we had the foundation of something. And once you have the foundation of something, it's really about how big is the market? How well do you scale? There's a whole separate conversation about culture and how you select people that we could get into. But, but I think for the early stage founders, like really being clear about whether you're on the right path and not being afraid to go for it and to change directions if you have conviction that there's a bigger opportunity and you have data to support it that's like maybe 90 degrees from where you're currently headed. Yeah, I appreciate that insight. And I was going to mention, it sounds like you were thinking, of, you know, looking at these pivots, but also you were using data at that point. You had enough data, you know, to look at that and see what is it telling me and and, and should we move in a different direction at that point? Yep. Yeah. Unit economics are everything. And... Steve Blank, when he wrote Four Steps to the Epiphany, literally outlined the scientific method for how you build a company. And so my philosophy is I'll always be successful at scale as long as you back me for long enough, because I'm just going to keep running experiments and learning until I find something that is a winner, and then we're going to scale the heck out of it. And I, and I think I think all the great inventors have like that sort of mentality. It's like, it's a win-win, either it works or I learned something. And as long as I learn really quickly and don't hold on to, you know, my own ego or, you know, kind of believe my own BS, then if you learn fast, eventually you're going to, you're going to find something that's really special. Yeah. I appreciate that, that insight and that experience. So Blake, as you scale the company right now at this size, I mean, pretty, pretty large size, do you have a favorite number or metric that you're focused on to manage the business? Um, well, I've, I've got three because it's, it's going to be how we're judged as a company. One, the first is revenue growth. The mm -hmm. second one is margins. And the third is sales efficiency. So, so whether it's a rule of 40 or, you know, magic number, all that stuff. I mean, those are the ones that kind of do it, but those, those are the three things that I'm focused on. And I like to start the product is its own thing, especially in a utility kind of network business like ours, the margins are, are what they are. So set that aside. But I think sales efficiency, especially during the pandemic, was something that a lot of founders, myself included, just let go of, you know, and, and the math's pretty clear, like whether you target enterprise customers or mid-market customers or SMB customers, generally your quota to on-target earnings needs to be at a five to one ratio. Mm -hmm. If it's not, you're going to start, you're going to need venture capital. You're going to burn people's money because if, if your salespeople can't be efficient at a five to one ratio paying for all your OPEX and engineers and, and everything that, you know, all the other functions that go into supporting it, you, you don't have enough 
margin to cover them. So, so really it's a function of how efficient are my sales teams? How efficient are the reps and who's a driver, who's a passenger. And if, if you really like pay attention to sales efficiency, you'll also find out like, where are the customers and the customer types where I have the strongest product market fit. And that really can help you focus in on customers that have the strongest resonance to, to your value proposition. And so to use a farming analogy, why go farm rocky soil when you can farm really nice, rich, fertile soil? And that sounds simple, but but actually it's mm -hmm. it's unbelievable how easy it is to get distracted and to lose sight of that. But I but I think the sales efficiency one for me is is the most important. Yeah, it makes it makes a lot of sense. And of course, you know, I, I live and breathe SAS metrics right now, teach courses in SAS metrics. But yeah, your side yeah, at first it's always a hey, let's just calculate SAS metrics. What's my CAC? What's my payback? Then at scale, right? At your what you're alluding to is now we're segmenting. Now maybe we're segmented by ICP or SMB versus exactly. market and enterprise. And yeah. those that data then tells a different story than looking at that top level data. Yeah, a hundred percent. And so and and our business is a little bit more complex because we we have we are fundamentally a sales-led go-to-market where it's revenue, you know, reps times their quota equals revenue and incremental ARR. But we also have a PLG component that's unique to us in that our overall TAM is, is a function of the number of ID cards that our wallet can support, right? So if we add payment capabilities to our wallet, our TAM just expands massively. So that's that's kind of like the enabler to the sales team where they have a larger menu that customers can order off of, if you will. And it's also like, you know, with our retail brands, like, can you do students? Can you do outdoor guides? Can you do interior designers? But yeah, theoretically all of them, but hey, what's our product roadmap look like and, and how quickly until we can actually deliver that as a product. Uh, but then we also have the user. So as a wallet, we, we have 110 million plus Americans who've signed up for ID.me. And our homepage is, is sort of like Okta for consumers, where we actually help those users understand where they're going to get streamlined access, both in terms of legal identity. So if you go to IDME, the government, you'll see social security and IRS and VA and unemployment agencies and departments of public health and stuff like that, that you can log into with your IDME credentials. But if you're military or a nurse or a doctor, you'll also see here's all these different organizations that kind of honor your service in different ways. And so there's a B2C component that's marketing-led go-to-market that's in there too. So there's a lot, but you know, ultimately, there's a lot of things that are on the table, but generally speaking, there's only a few things that really matter. And so in, in this business, it's our sales-led go-to-market that is the engine for everything, and it's enterprise go-to-market that matters the most. So when I, you look at what really moves the needle, it's the sales efficiency within our enterprise go-to-market. And whether we have the right structure to, to go win some of the largest enterprise accounts that are that are in the world. So don't want to mess that up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'd imagine at your scale, a lot of different motions going, SLG, PLG, you mentioned a B2C component, you know, at that scale to reach all your target audiences. So Blake, really appreciate your time today as we wrap up. What's next for ID.me? What do you see coming down the road? What's exciting or, or where do you think, you know, digital identity is going? So we are building the identity layer for the internet, and we're now the largest digital wallet in Europe and North America. We, we passed Italy, which had 40 million 
verified adults. We have 45 million Americans that we've enrolled to these Department of Commerce standards. And the next phase for us over the next three years is to become ubiquitous for online identity verification, uh, whether you're checking into a hotel, getting access to your healthcare records, signing up for a bank account, notarizing a document and digital signature to accessing government services. We don't want you to have to manage passwords and, and to reprove that you're you. We want to be the last login, the last ID verification, last multi-factor enrollment, and to, uh, to ultimately streamline your life so you have a much more enjoyable experience when you're online. I love that. And if you can, please help with the health healthcare record. I have so many different <laughs> IDs for that and can't get logged into any of them. So, so we're yes, on it. Yes, we're working I love on it. it. Well, Blake, really appreciate uh, your time, your insight, your service in the Army. If if listeners would like to learn more about, well, I think I know ID.me, where should we send them online? Yeah, sure. You can go to ID.me for the website. And then I'm also on LinkedIn and Twitter at Blake underscore Hall. Sounds like I should be on threads too, but my C my CMO is on that. I haven't I haven't yet gotten around to that, but soon. That sounds good. Well, again, Blake, really appreciate your time sharing your experiences and thanks for being on the show today. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate it.